Welcome to the Serious Leisure Podcast. My name is Petya Petrova. I'm your host for today's podcast. I'm joined by our regular podcast contributors, Dr. Sam Elkington and Kat Branch. Sam is from Teesside University. He's our Serious Leisure expert. Welcome, Sam. Hi, Petya. Hello, everybody. Hi, Sam. Kat leads the University of the West of England Centre for Music. Welcome, Kat. Hi, Petya. Hi, Kat. Lovely to see you both here today, fresh and healthy. For our listeners, we often refer to the University of the West of England as UE or UE Bristol. So if you hear that UE sound, you know what we're talking about. In this podcast, we share stories about our leisure pursuits, our passions, our hobbies and our interests. We reflect on our attempts to successfully balance work and leisure time or maybe not so successfully, depending on our stories. And we draw on insights from the vast literature on serious leisure. We are very excited to welcome today our two podcast guests. Dr. Noel Dennis is Associate Dean, Marketing and Recruitment at Teesside University. Welcome, Noel. Good afternoon, Petya. Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for the invite. Well, thanks for making the time for us. We know that you're very busy. And talking of uh, busy and guests that we're very welcome to have here is uh, we have with us Tim Hughes, who is Professor of Applied Marketing here at UE Bristol. Welcome, Tim. Hi, Patricia, and hi, everybody. Right. So don't we have an episode for you today? Tim and Noel are both musicians, and they're here to talk to us about music and how music has claimed more and more time of their lives and more and more space in their lives and their kind of professional and personal development. So we have a really um, interesting conversation coming coming up today. But before we delve into Tim and Noah's serious leisure pursuit and their love of music, uh, let us find a little bit about their professional roles. Okay, uh, Petya, shall I go first? Um, yes, please. Yeah, I'm, as I say, a professor in the business school here at UE uh, in marketing. My background is I worked in marketing for many years and in marketing management and I then ran my own business for a few years doing consultancy and at kind of age of about 47 I did a PhD and um, came to UE as a a lecturer. So I've been doing that ever since, um, doing quite a lot of research in the marketing side, uh, supervising PhD students and other students and a bit of teaching. Thanks, Tim. That's, I know it took, it actually takes a lot to summarize a, a long professional career in a few sentences. <laughs> so thank you for that. It's, um, it can be hard, I know. Um, and then we have with us No. No, would you please tell us a little bit about your role? Of course, I'd be delighted to. So I'm currently Associate Dean uh, Marketing and Recruitment at uh, Teesside University in the International Business School there. Um, I My background, like Tim's, is actually marketing as well. So my academic background is marketing. Um, and I studied undergrad marketing and postgraduate uh, management and took a bit of time out after I graduated to be a musician and a bit of teaching in a primary school. Um, and then somehow ended up as a, as a part-time lecturer in Teesside University Business School as it was then and built a career up to principal lecturer, left for a little bit, worked as associate dean in uh, Glasgow and in York, and then missed Teesside so much, 
that I came back to the business school uh, and I'm delighted to be doing what I'm doing now. But I've managed to fuse my passion for jazz with management education, which you'll hear a little bit about later on. Thank you. And it's actually quite interesting how both of you, um, I'm doing lots of spoilers for our listeners, how both of you have managed to integrate your personal and professional um, interests and also how similar their stories are. And indeed, when we were preparing for this podcast, we realized that you know each other. <laughs> so um, so it is a small, small world in so many ways. Met at conferences in the past. We certainly did. And uh, the memorable, I think we first met in Aston in 2003 when it was my first ever uh, publication. Um, ah, right. That's yeah. where we met. Yeah. That was a great conference. It was. Yeah. <laughs> Academically well, and socially. Yes, it was. I agree. Obviously, leading you down, down dangerous ways socially. <laughs> certainly did. I'm smiling here and thinking, oh, do you remember the times when they were actually in person conferences? I will not tell my listeners about my favorite conference, which was in Croatia, in Dubrovnik. I shall just leave that hanging there. Anyway, we're not here to talk about conferences and we're not here to talk about your personal roles. We are here to talk about your love of music. So as well as being an associate dean at Teesside, Noah is also a trumpet player. And as well as being a professor at UE Bristol, Tim is also an acoustic guitarist. So let us start at the beginning. Would you please both of you tell us about where your music journey started and where we currently find you? Noah, can we start with you, please? Of course, thank you, I'd be delighted. Yes, yeah, so I, I was um, born into a musical family. So my uh, grandfather was a, was a saxophone player. Uh, he played in the dance bands in the 40s and 50s in the local area. And my dad was a, a, a drummer, but he started off playing in a cornet in, in brass bands. So I was given my first trumpet when I was seven. Um, and I, I, I just fell in love with it, really. I, I, my dad taught me. And it was when I was about nine, he introduced me to um, Miles Davis, the trumpet player. And I, that's when I first heard jazz and I was fascinated by the sounds. And, and since that moment, really, I started to really get into to music. Um, my dad ran a really uh, successful youth band, which I served my time in, really, uh, in the trumpet section there. And I learned a lot from being in the band. But it wasn't until I was sort of 17 that I started to really take jazz improvisation on the trumpet seriously. And I managed to hook up with an amazing trumpet player who is still teaching me now, actually, and one of my favourite players, a guy called Gerard Presenza. And I heard him play at a conference at the Royal Northern College of Music in 1995. And I was just stunned that somebody could play the trumpet like that. And that inspired me to, to take um, a more formal learning journey into learning to improvise rather than just listening um, and transcribing by ear, which I've been doing to that point. And that's when I got hooked. And that's when I started to gig, I set up my band, and the rest is history, as they say. Thanks, Noel. We'll talk about this history in more depth in a moment. Um, Tim, how about you? Well, this is where I guess my journey is very different from Noel's because I, you know, 10 years ago, I certainly wouldn't have quieted myself as a musician. So I, I've always loved um, blues music, particularly um, since I was young and always going out to see people play. But it was only really about eight or nine years ago that I started to learn myself. I think I had tried to play guitar about 20 or 25, 30 years ago and, and kind of given up. Um, 
But then I, I came back to it about eight years ago and really kind of fell in love with it and um, was been pretty dedicated to it. And it, it's become a really big part of my, my life. I play finger style um, guitar and also also slide guitar. So I have different guitars for different slide, uh, different styles and very much into the acoustic kind of folk blues music. And about five years ago, after having done it for three or four years, I actually made the step of playing in front of people, which I think is always a big step in, in music and very, very scary. So I kind of turned up at a folk club and I didn't know whether they'd let me play blues at a folk club, but they were very welcoming and I was probably pretty awful. Um, but, you know, that, that got me off in, in, in terms of playing in front of other people. The, the nice thing about folk clubs is that um, everybody tends to go there to play themselves. So they, they understand the, 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 the challenges of it. So, yeah, since then, it's, it's really taken off. And I, I, I play every, every, every day. Um, it's, it's a bit of an addiction, really. And... Um, it's, I guess, the mainly the most important thing in my life now because um, I've, in the last couple of years, I've semi-retired and gone down to uh, two days a week at work, and so this is really the main focus of of what I do, and I I've got lots of plans to to do more, which maybe we'll cover um, cover in the future. Thank you, Tim. May I talk to you about that turning point about. I tried something, I gave it up, I was really interested, and then suddenly I decided to commit to it. Can I just find a yeah. bit more about that process and what was in the environment and what was happening inside you, inside your head at the time? Yeah, I think probably when I, I tried it, um, had a few less, quite a few lessons actually in the 90s, um, I think I had a lot more going on. I was, I was probably doing my PhD at the time and obviously, you know, quite busy with work and, and various things. So I think there were perhaps other priorities. I think the other thing is that uh, the availability of things like lessons online has completely changed since then. And the ability to actually learn things um, online has, has really made it much more easy to do it in many ways. And I think the, the other bit was yeah my my life circumstances had changed and so you know my children had left home and um had more more available space to to, to really focus on this so i get the life transition to ch children leaving home well notionally i get that <laughs> somebody <laughs> who doesn't have um children what i'm interested in you're talking about online learning so were you teaching yourself using online materials or, or were you doing online classes with, with people? Well, I suppose it was, it was online teach, teaching myself, but you can, for example, I, I joined up as an American player, a blues person who does video lessons. So you're not actually doing lessons with him, but he posts video lessons and you, you subscribe to that. So I subscribed to that and, and learned quite a lot through that. Interestingly, recently, um, during COVID, uh, I've got a friend, my Michael Roach, who's an American acoustic blues player. He, he actually lives in Cheltenham now, but um, 
he he had some time and he he offered me online lessons and so this was learning from somebody who'd learned from some of the older blues players we did those over zoom which was which was and that worked very very well you know tim i'm when i'm sort of listening to um the progress that you've made when you came back to guitaring it's still really notable to me that actually you've, you've had this sort of inner motivation you know you can imagine at center for music at at you at UE, I see a lot of students who are really keen to learn and they've got those resources. And because we're there as a service, they've even got an instrument. And and as we know, being an undergraduate, they've got quite a lot more time on their hands than than we have. Um, but they're still not quite the motivation and discipline. Where has that come from for you at this point, do you think, to make use of those resources, but in a way that you actually are making forward motion from what you've described, rather than just noodling around the same riffs? Because certainly when I play guitar, guitar is not my first study, I just, I just noodle around the same riffs. And I occasionally, you know, I might watch an online video and pretend I'm going to push myself, but actually I tend to do that on my other instruments. So yeah. what's happening for you there with, the, with that motivational push? I think I'm very driven to be... Um, successful in whatever I actually choose to do. So once I've chosen to do something, I mean, for example, you know, I I left um, the comfort of working for um, marketing companies to set up my own consultancy, which was successful for eight years. Um, I did a PhD because I decided to do that, which was very much a different thing to do at the age, you know, 47 when I was doing that. Um, so once I've decided to do something and I'm very keen to do it, I, I kind of make sure I succeed in it. I think perhaps that's a matter of um, experience and, you know, what works, but it, also just enthusiasm. I, I don't find it hard to pick up a guitar. I find it hard not to pick up a guitar. Yeah, I was really interested in you use the language of, you know, uh, addiction you know which uh, unless you're a very particular type of student I don't know that the word addiction applies to the experience of doing a PhD um, unless anyone would like to contradict me um, uh, and also in the same way you know being excellent at your job or running your own business these are really like tangible clear things that have income attached to them and other types of success measures but learning to play the guitar feels a lot more open-ended in terms of where you're going with that. So do you have very set goals in mind then with this you know, motivation and determination to be amazing or actually has something else entered your thinking in that experience so that you have a softer grip on what you're aiming to do? What's happening? I'm, I'm afraid I, I do have rather set goals, you know, probably not good really, but um, <laughs> that's just the way I am. Um, so, you know, having, having started off doing this and I've, one of the things that I've done is I've developed a show called 120 Years of the Blues, uh, which is a combination of playing and talking about the history of the blues. And I, Michael Roach helped me develop that because he's got vast knowledge. And, you know, so I've, I've developed that. I did it at Nailsworth Festival um, last summer, and then I did it at another festival, Sherston Festival in the autumn. I'm communicating with various local festivals to do that in the next year. And I've got very plain views I want to do it you know perhaps six or seven times in the next year so you know I do have these kind of targets I go for um you know rightly or wrongly that's that's the kind of way I operate I have to kind of achieve things you know thanks then no, that's very interesting and I think before um 
people like me listen to you and, and start uh, kicking myself for not being uh, as successful at both my career and my hobby um <laughs> it may be worth worth just encouraging people to say you you've ca- you have currently moved to a part-time um role uh, at, at you so so you are using that spare capacity of time um yeah. to, to to grow your music interests um, yeah i know uh, I know some of our listeners and I know what you're like, so just take it easy. <laughs> There's <Yeah>. more time. <laughs> Thank you for that, Tim. Um, no, we talked about Tim's almost growth spurts in his guitar learning and um, becoming a musician and, and playing at festivals. You obviously have a longer career with music, but where, where you, th- you feel your biggest and most important growth spurs were? The, the, the milestone moments were that first Miles Davis album that I heard. And then a couple of years after that, my dad made me listen to an album uh, by Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. Now, Art Blakey uh, was his favourite drummer. And he made me listen to a particular track uh, on this this album called Skylark. And there's a wonderful trumpet player called Freddie Hubbard um, on there. And I heard Freddie's sound uh, on this particular track. And again, I think that, that stepped me up. I'd be about 11 then. And that I thought I want to sound like that, so I started listening to lots of Freddie Hubbard, and he's got a very, very di- distinct, very dark sound. Um, it, it, his trumpet playing almost sounded flugel horn esque. It's like a really difficult sound to describe, but it's just one that I had in my head, and so I, that was a milestone moment. And then I guess meeting Gerard in in nineteen ninety five was the moment that I realised that. I, I, I'd gone as far as I could and I needed some help. So I'd been, I'd been improvising, but I didn't really know the rules behind it because believe it or not, um, jazz is not completely made up. There are um, rules to it. Uh, you have to learn a language. Now, my trumpet teacher, Gerard, at the time, when I got up, I actually got up and, and improvised over a, a blues in F at the Royal Northern. And I didn't know what I was doing, but he said at the end, he said two things to me. He said, you've got great time and you've got a good ear. Um, he said, so I'd like to teach you. And so it was it was a year after that I started going to London um, on the train as, a, as an 18-year-old um, every month to Gerard's house to have lessons. And that's when I kind of learned, oh, yeah, so I learned about the 251 progression and, and, I, and he learned about the mix and I'm developing some technical capability and understanding how the standard repertoire so in jazz a lot of the, the music we play is called jazz standards so these tunes are written um for entertainment purposes you know in the 30s 40s 50s and they're still played today and every time you play one you find something something new in it but i learned the mechanics of of how they worked and how you learned them and internalized them um and i'm still doing it now i think the thing is you never ever stop learning you know you're only as good as your last gig my dad would say uh as he would have said he's not here now unfortunately but that's the sort of mantra i i take and i i'll be I'll be honest with you um the gigs have been very limited the past two years because of the situation um but i've managed to do uh some nice gigs a handful of them um and i'm at the stage now where i think i need to pick up the trumpet a bit more and have some uh, more lessons with gerard just to push myself uh on so that's that's the thing that i'm uh, that's my next sort of piece and i'm going to be having lessons online with gerard is in copenhagen uh from next month so 
let's see where I go next. It's fascinating. I, I think we're at a stage now where I want to ask the question. So what's the hook for both of you? You know, so what is it about doing what you do and how you do it that makes you want to set those goals or seek out those opportunities and, and continuously look for, for new ways of stretching yourself? Uh, Nob, we'll come to you first. So what's the hook? You know, experientially, what is it all about for you? For me, do you know, Sam, it's, I look at being a musician and I feel very privileged to be able to, to do it. And I know I've, I've had an advantage because I was brought up into a musical family. Uh, you know, that certainly helped me. But I just couldn't be without it, Sam, the, the trumpet. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's always out of its case. Even if I don't play it every day, the trumpet is out. I'm thinking mentally about music. I think in music. I think in patterns. And that informs my day job as an academic, you know. So I, I look at my discipline of marketing and leadership and how I operate and behave. I approach it as an improviser, you know. So I think the hook is, is the music. It's jazz. It's improvisation. And I look at, I want to develop musically, but also I want to develop my academic work as well in the space of the jazz metaphor and take that in de- different directions. So I can't do one without the other, you know. So I need to, you know, my, my, my D-prof, my professional doctorate, which I completed three years ago, was writing up all of my professional uh, publications, but also it took into account my, my um, learner journey, if you like, as an improviser. And I learned much more about myself as a, as a jazz improviser through that process of reflection than I've probably done in any part of my life up to that point. And that has hooked me to, to develop even further it's identified some of my weaknesses that I want to address, but also it's given me opportunities to think, right, okay, I can develop more as an improviser musically. I can explore different projects. So I've got some ideas uh, that I'm going to be doing this year with a with sort of an atmospheric trio, so sort of atmospheric sort of trumpet playing. But also, as I said, I want to develop um, a toolkit for uh, businesses that can sort of help them and the individuals within their organisations develop improvisatory skills as well to make a difference to their organisation. So I don't know if that answers your question, Sam, but okay, it's, the, it's the trumpet that is always and always will be the hook. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I know you, mate. We've had conversations, many conversations about, yeah. you know, the, the applications of that and what it means for all various different walks of life. But, I mean, what I'm hearing in that is it's just an outlook. It's a worldview for you. It's not something you can separate from yourself. It's, yeah. it's how you think about the world. And I think that's... That's a really interesting. We have, I think we probably have about three or four podcasts on that one. But um, so I think I think I think that's really really interesting. Tim, is it similar similar for you as well, or is there, is there something different in that for you? Well, I think you know the hook is just I love playing, and you know when it's good. Um, I think just thinking about it, the other thing I'd add is um, how much it's kind of changed my social life because I've got to know a load of people who play music who I would never have got to know otherwise. So um, from the folk club, for example, I'm, I live near Stroud and I've got to whole a load of new people I've known there. In um, Nailsworth, where I live, um, I've got to know local musicians. And that, funnily enough, that quite happened through COVID and trying to set up various Zoom things. But then we ended up meeting up in people's gardens and playing a bit. Um, and through um, a, a blues 
week that is is held, um, Michael Roach organises at Hartbury. Um, again, I've got to know a whole load of people who are, have a similar interest. So it has it's got a kind of social element as well to what I do. Yeah, I, I think I think um, I hear that in what Noel's saying as well. There's certainly something about um, kind of that social world of the musician, isn't there? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, Noel, you know, growing up literally in that social world, Tim, you discovering that social world. Yeah. And, you know, as part of that hook you were just talking about there, it's the attachment to that. And also what I'm hearing as well, I mean, Noel's explicitly said this, but you've also mentioned it yourself as well, in that, you know, the, the learning that goes on, you know, so the sharing of practice and the, the talking of, and even the offers to do that kind of informal teaching that's all part and parcel. And we, we see this in so many, in all of, in fact, the serious leisure pursuits that we've talked about on the podcast, you know, they're anchored in a distinctive social world with its own kind of normative ways of behaving. And, you know, and again, but the thing about being a musician, it's, it's more nuanced, isn't it? You know, we've got two very different instruments here. You can, there's similarities, but in those social worlds, there's still that nuance. And I find that fascinating. Sorry, Kat, you want to come in? Yeah, I was just interested in um, in when Tim when he brought up social worlds because I think music social worlds can be subject to some very interesting dynamics, and uh, certainly um, in some jazz circles that I've moved in, they can be quite sharky waters to navigate. If I could say, uh, Noel, did you want to dive in there? Yeah, I was going to say that it's very interesting. So I. Uh... One of the things I, love, I agree about the social aspect of being a musician, it, it provides a real rich social life. And many of my uh, musician colleagues are actually my, my closest friends. And it's great just, you know, it's great walking into a room with trumpet players. And, you know, the first thing you start talking, what mouthpiece are you using? You know, so these sorts of dull uh, to, to the outside world probably sound really dull. But that's a big part of learning for me. So I was really lucky, as Sam said, growing up, in a musical family but before i even picked up the trumpet my dad would gig six nights a week and he would play the social clubs in middlesbrough where you would go and he would be back in live entertainment so when that music was live and people were going out to watch things but i setting up the drums meeting these interesting characters in the social clubs, i learned a lot about sort of how to interact with people from different backgrounds at a really early age and that was that was music that brought me from that but also working with musicians that were much older than me uh, and hearing their stories that they had to tell. Again, that info, that's a massive piece of work to make you understand how music works holistically. So it's one thing being able to blow the trumpet and play a tune, but it's actually the, the you know, understanding the cultural norms and what goes on on the bandstand and what happened in 1976 when we did this gig on a Saturday night and the drummer did, the, you know, all fascinating rich stories but I remember you know I came through a, a, a big band called the voice of the north when I was 16 and I was the youngest member in there it was all all sort of older older sort of experienced musicians and I remember feeling quite intimidated in the trumpet section on trumpet floor not really knowing what I was doing um, but I was supported and I learned so much from that experience but listening to those guys talk uh, in the breaks about the gigs they've done I, it just inspired me to play even more and I'll never forget the time when a, a trumpet player turned around to me. I was 16 and he bought me a pint of Guinness. He said, you shouldn't be drinking this. He said, you're so young, you smell of sweets. Um, <laughs> but take it anyway. 
but again, you know, it was just, I look back on that time, so I was so lucky to be able to spend time with those musicians to learn about, you know, what they did and, and how they, they survived. Because the, the, the musical landscape has changed dramatically, you know, in the 70s, 80s, my dad was gigging, earning a fortune gigging. That those gigs have dried up now. A lot of them, you know, back in uh, live turns and things, and you know, the pay has not really gone up to what it was in the eighties. It's a, it's a shame um, that that's happened. It's the same with sort of the session work uh, that used to be uh, a massive uh, sort of industry. Um, things have changed, but you know, I learned so much and, and continue to do so uh, when I do interact with musicians. You know, it's a, it's a great it's a great thing. Thanks so much, Noel. I actually loved the just picturing you there as a 16-year-old with, you know, these older, more experienced musicians. And, I, you know, I just get such a warm and fuzzy feeling, actually, that that was nice and that it wasn't a place where where that intimidating feeling you arrived with carried on. You know, I think that's fantastic. Tim, did you want to come in there? Yeah, just to say, I think mine is a very different social world than, than Noel's because whereas Noel's is professional musicians, the vast majority of the people that I interact with musically Although some of them are semi-professional or have made their living out of music, the vast majority are, are like me. And it's amazing how many, uh, they, the difference is they've probably played for most of their life. You know, they may have played for 30 or 40 years and I haven't. But, but there's a vast number of very, very good amateur musicians around and, um, you know, a whole community of those. Maybe I'm lucky in the area that I live in, that there's a lot in my area. Do you think, Tim, there's a particular flavour to that kind of amateur musician sense of camaraderie, that sense of that shared shared passion doing it just for the love of it? Do you think that's a defining feature of the social world? Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's very difficult, as Noel says, it's very difficult to make money out of um, music as a career unless you're, you know, highly successful. Um, and so it's, it's, it's purely enthusiasm that people, we, we love what we're doing. I would, I would completely agree with that, uh, Tim. Music, well, certainly being a jazz musician, it's not a lucrative career. And I know a lot of people who, who are, into it, are into it for the love, but they, in order to survive, they, they do other things like teaching. And I remember the, the, the gentleman who was involved in that big band who set it up saying to me, look, he said, why don't you have the best of both worlds? He said, get a proper job and still enjoy playing your trumpet and do the two. So I'm, I'm kind of a semi-professional uh, musician in that sense. And always have been. I've just been really lucky that I've been able to you know, fuse it into the day job. Um, but he also said an interesting quote to me as well. He could be the best trumpet player in the world, be penniless, best jazz trumpet player in the world. And it's right, you know, it's the, the jazz scene in the UK is thriving in part, but there are some challenges around it. It has diminished. I think the past 10 years have been challenging with, with arts funding sort of not being as ubiquitous as it once was. Um, and I know I'm involved at the moment as, a, as an independent panel member of a review of jazz in the UK to look at you know what, what's happening, what, what we can do to sort of uh, boost its its prominence again. But I would agree with that. It's, it, you know, it, I don't think you go into music purely for the music. I think the love of it has got to be there because it's one of those things you, you know, you, you've got to want to do it all the time. You've, you've got to live and breathe it. And I think that you don't need to be a professional to do that. You know, you can be an amazing uh, musician and not 
uh, be in the professional circuit. So I would completely support what you said there, Tim. Thanks, Noel. I was interested in your comments about the love of it. Um, and I was also very intrigued by um, Tim's mention earlier around the fact that I loved it when it's good and or you don't love it when it's not good. And I was very intrigued by that as somebody who is moving from a kind of a hobbies, taking classes pursuits to going on stage with my improv theater um, and starting to have some really bad rehearsals. <laughs> Luckily, the shows have been okay, but the rehearsals are starting to feel like, I don't know what I'm doing. This is just not happening. Um, and I wonder, I just really wanted to unpack that with you because there's a story to be told about that early, we talked about spurt of growth and then you're becoming more expert in your music playing but just unpack for me please what that yeah. thing about love it when it's good and don't love it when it's not good please well, i think i think um you know you're, you're never quite certainly i'm never quite sure that it is good you know and uh, you need kind of reassurance a lot of the time but i'll give you an example last night i also play in a duo with a harmonica player and last night we played um, actually at a folk club and I think we played four numbers and the, we don't get a lot of chance to um, rehearse together. And the last number wasn't very good. You know, it just fell apart a bit. We managed to pull it once, once you're in front of people, you pull it together, you don't stop and you, you carry on. But I felt really bad about that, you know, but I just have to accept that that's, that's what it's going to be like it's not going to be perfect all the time you aspire to being perfect but you know often often you think it's it's not very good but people don't even notice amazingly <laughs> so that that's what i'm saying it's it's like anything it's got it's got ups and downs yeah i, I would have, i'd take a little bit of a different view on that one so in jazz um mistakes if if the wheels aren't falling off you're not you're not trying hard enough. That's what my great uh, friend and, and core sort of uh, worker who works with me on the jazz workshops, uh, a guy called Pete Churchill, an amazing um, musician, uh, piano player, jazz musician, music, musical educator. And we talk about that in jazz. There are there are no recriminations for mistakes because of that whole nature of the supportive nature of a jazz group. If someone's struggling, if I'm struggling. I know that the piano player or the bass player is gonna, gonna hear what I'm struggling and give me a little bit of a lifeline out. So it's to, when I'm improvising, I do try things and they don't come up. And I used to be really, I used to feel bad about that if I'd split a note or if I'd played a wrong note over the change, but now I kind of look at ways of trying to recover from that to make it sound as if it was right. So if I play a wrong note, I'll play it for a bit longer just to say that I'm going outside of it um so in the powers of recovery comes discovery in improvisation and that's that's what i do i always do a post-mortem on the gig afterwards and think ah, i shouldn't have was too fast i went on too long there but i try not to look at mistakes as 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 dreadful things and and i agree with you tim often the audience won't notice you think you've had a really bad gig and someone comes up to you and goes that was amazing that you sounded great yeah i think it's sometimes how we feel about ourselves when we're in that sort of situation. If you go into a gig and you're not feeling brilliant, you can sometimes go in with a mindset that oh, I'm not going to play very well tonight and I didn't play very well tonight. In actual fact, 
you can sometimes go and thinking, I'm going to play great tonight, and you don't get any compliments at the end of the gig. It's often when you think you've played bad that people will come up and say you sounded great. That's what I've found anyway. No, it's so interesting when you were talking about the connections with your other jazz musicians and how if it's not going too well in the moment, you know, knowing that they'll step in for you. Because um, at Centre for Music, we have a jazz ensemble which we have been trying to help those young people develop that same culture. And it's just yeah. been honestly moving to see some of the most introvert and quiet students who find risk-taking very, very difficult and are, are very intimidated by failure and feel that a small failure must be them as a failing as a person, you know, rather than failing in that moment, have learned to differentiate between these two experiences and to, and to take those risks that you're talking about because they know their backs are covered. Yeah. by these other musicians you know because i think when you play together there is this special connection process that goes on isn't there it's Absolutely. unique as a yeah. musician clearly i am biased but i think you know there is a, a very particular type of connection you know which is well beyond language that happens when you're making music together i would um, agree yeah yeah it oh, is it, absolutely yeah it's that it, it's the it's the um non-vocal isn't it and 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 sort of these the, this shared understanding of, of what's going to happen next and what if this happens, how to deal with it. And yeah. it's not something you sit down post gig. It's not like being an airline pilot where you, where you do prepare, the, the, you know, you prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Before every flight, you know, you discuss every potential scenario and what could go wrong. In music, you don't talk about it, but you have in your mind, yes, if this goes wrong, you know, this will happen. But it's never talked about, is it? And, and no one really teaches it. It's only experience. It's only actually doing it and, and making the mistakes. I found I, I, I learned a lot about playing uh, by actually being in the youth band, as I said, but also being on the bandstand, you know, and, and trying things out with those more experienced musicians who will say, don't worry about it, just keep going. You yeah, know. just keep going. That's right. Yeah. And then you've got that safe space to fail where exactly. no, one's, no one's judging you and, and, and no one's doing you down. Uh, Sam, did you want to uh, jump in there? Yeah, I, I, there's so many things I want to comment on, but the, I mean, I'm not a musician to just put it out there, but what, I do love music and pretty much all music, actually. And I am from a musical family. Um, and I, I just, I'm enjoying listening to the different journeys and the different perspectives. But what I'm, what I'm hearing as well is this idea, because we've, we've spoken a lot on the podcast about this whole idea of mastery or, you know, self-development. Um, through our leisure pursuits. Um, and obviously, I think for both of you, we're, we're certainly when we're talking about um, being a musician in the context of serious leisure, you know, there's this relationship with the amateur and professional realms and domains. And I think you both obviously straddle both of those. And, um, you know, it's a gray area for a lot of musicians, actually. Um, but I was interested in listening to, to both of you talking there and actually thinking, well, yeah, okay, you, you know, Tim's been on a journey, a more recent journey of self-development in terms of mastering that particular instrument. And now you're at a different place, maybe in terms of actually, well, you've both talked about similar things, but mastery being more kind of relative to, well, now you're talking about, well, how do I not make a mistake on purpose, but how do I really put it out there in terms of, stretching yourself and challenging yourself and not necessarily playing not to making a mistake you know looking for that perfection 
And I just wondered, you know, whether you could comment on that, you know, this idea, because th th there is, there's a, the, in all of the uh, stories that we've heard, there's a, there is that need for perseverance. You know, you, you, at the end of the day, you didn't, you didn't put it down the first time you made a mistake, you carried on, but also that significant personal effort is something that is, and in, and in the frame, in the context of the framework, serious leisure framework we're talking about here, serious leisure career, you can see that career type involvement in both of uh, your stories and journeys in terms of, well, there's gonna be peaks and troughs and there's gonna be right and left turns, but ultimately it's gonna involve a significant amount of effort to continue to develop. Um, but it's all relative as well, because you know, no, you're talking about, well, you know, I, I'm trying something new, or I'm trying to hide the mistakes I'm making, but I'm trying to make a mistake here just to see where I can take it. And then Tim, your your point around, you know, I like this whole idea of exploring this idea of what it means to play well, because you've both got a very different perspective on that. So I just wondered, Tim, do you want to come in there first, and then Noel, you can follow on. Yeah, I think one of the differences, you know, Noel is playing with professional musicians and he's playing jazz whereas um as you say so he's, he's a lot further on in many ways than i am so um you know for for me the 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 question of as soon as you play live and as soon as you get in front of other people you will make mistakes and you've got to just live with that it won't be perfect it's the it's the, everyone says you know you can get it perfect in your own room but as soon as you go out and do it in real life, it all kind of threatens to fall apart. And that's all the pressures of being in front of people. Um, and so I think, you know, you, you shouldn't be too much of a perfectionist and you should just, you know, accept that's part of the process. And, you know, you probably, you, you remember the mistakes you make and, and you forget the 90% that is, that is right. So I think, you know, it's, it's part and parcel of it. And when you see, people who play something at the end, oh, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. Well, that's a big mistake because most people won't have even noticed. So never apologize. <laughs> yeah, um, it's interesting, Sam. So the next thing for me, as I said, I'd, I'd like to do something a bit different, but, but do you know where I'm at in my, my career now? When, when you're younger, starting out, when I was sort of 18, all I wanted to do was to play fast and furious and high and loud. And as I've got a bit older, I realise now that I don't need to do that. You can you can inspire and impress people more by playing very little. And so I'm kind of really into sound now and, and this atmospheric thing. I'm, I, I don't want to play fast bebop. I want to be known more of a, you know, some of my favourite trumpet players that I take inspiration from, the likes of a uh, German trumpet player called Till Bronner, uh, who has just a unique sound. He uses a lot of the mute. And I kind of want to just find that sort of place now. It, it, you know, 15 years ago, it'd be how fast can you do it? And, you know, and that actually, whilst I'll still do that sometimes, that's not what I want to achieve now. I want to achieve sort of a different sound so that I've gone from the, the, the formula of learning to improvise. You first imitate, then you assimilate. I feel like I'm I'll always do a bit of imitation. I'll always do a bit of imitation, uh, assimilation, but I think I'm, I want to innovate now, but I want to innovate and, and, and do my own thing that maybe someone might look at and say, well, that's a bit bland or it's not adventurous and exciting, but I just, I want to explore playing the trumpet more softly, more low, um, and just produce really nice sounding melodies 
that's my thing at the moment. That might change, of course, because you do change as you listen to things and as you watch things. But that's where I am at this moment in time. So just change direction a little bit and calm down. <laughs> Thanks, now. Just listening to you talking about improvisation in the context of music and thinking about my experience of improvisation in the context of theatre is, is really, um, really insightful. Because I'm not a musician, I'm as far as away from being a musician as a human being can be, really. Um, but of course, in improv theater, there is the, the or at least um, there's the idea of, of happy fail. So you celebrate failure and actually you identify the mistake and you zoom on the mistake. And sometimes that becomes the biggest laugh and the biggest gag in, in the middle of the, the performance. But I was also struck about your description of when you were young, you were you were kind of fast and possibly forceful and loud. Um, and and as as your expertise developed, uh, th that's mellowed a little bit. And I think that's also my reflection of um, being a, just learning to improvise. And you go in and you try to speak in hundred hundred minutes, hundred words a minute, and not take your pause, and then speak over your partner. And and as you mature, you you realize that actually the deeper scenes, the more meaningful scenes, are the scenes where you take your time, you create the atmosphere. There's the kind of the scene around you. You take your dramatic pauses. Um, and and you just settle down in that kind of slow slowness and in that quiet quietness um, that is very uncomfortable for somebody who is who is brand new on, on a stage. Fascinating cat. Is that something about where what we're doing in this case music is then less about what we're trying to prove about ourselves and more about what we're trying to express and um, and also possibly enjoy you know not that playing flashily isn't enjoyable <laughs> um but we just use that's the the emphatic change isn't it where we're not trying to show what we can do um but actually communicate something to somebody else instead and just sort of relax into it um, yeah, i would agree i would i would if i just just come in on that one actually it's um miles davis used to say didn't he it's it's the notes that you don't play that have the most impact and it's right. i think it's i think it's having a confidence um not certainly i found when i was just starting out to improvise i felt like i had to fill every single gap but actually it's sometimes nice just to play a phrase leave a bit let someone else play behind and do it and i think that for me it takes confidence to be able to not to over express yourself. That's what I think. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think, um, can I just slightly switch tack because I know we haven't got a lot of time left. Um, going back a little while, um, we were talking about, you know, motivations for doing this kind of thing. Now, um, just to be music nerdy for a moment, um, for any of our listeners who don't know, all the different things one could do to get dopamine going in the brain. You could exercise like Sam. I'm sure he could offer us good advice there. Um, there are other different activities you could do, but making music is up there, you know, for the dopamine levels. I just wanted to ask you both with Noel and your lifelong journey and then Tim coming back around, having tried to dipped in and then dipped out again and come back later in life. To what extent for you, for both of you, is there just an innate you know, brain level chemical enjoyment about what you're doing? Or is it really fundamentally about the journey? Because we've heard so much about the, the learning and the developing and the you've never finished learning stuff. Is there still a sense of innate enjoyment 
that brings you to the instrument? Absolutely. Um, I just, as I said, I just love the trumpet. It's just, it's always been there. And, you know, just, just playing it just earlier on when I was before this, I felt better. Sometimes I can feel a little bit down and I, I might wonder why I, I'm feeling like that. And I might realise that, oh, actually, I haven't picked up the trumpet for a few days because I've been busy. And it's subconscious that. And I always feel better when I have. And you cannot beat that feeling. You cannot beat that feeling when you do a gig, you know, a live gig, and you're with um, your, your band. The last one I did was for the Scarborough Jazz Festival. And I was with some amazing musicians. And the feeling was just amazing and it lasts for days afterwards it's like a it's like a positive hangover if there's a term that we could you know you, you finish the gig and then I come home and I can't go to sleep I have to sit over and watch the tv with a glass of red or something but then for days after I will just feel it you know it'll be it'll be a point of conversation it's just a feeling that I can't describe and again it comes back to me saying earlier on I feel very privileged to be able to do what I do you know and but I'm, I'm still nowhere near where I need to be and I probably never will be, but I'm going to continue to enjoy the journey. Yeah, thank you, Noel. But Tim, did you want to? Yeah, it was, it was very interesting what you were saying about dopamine because I'd never really thought about this, but, you know, I think I said it was addictive earlier and, you know, for me, I just have to go and play guitar. You know, I, I feel if I, if I don't go and do that sometimes, you know, um, I kind of, something missing so so it is addictive a couple of other things occurred to me while we were talking um which we haven't talked about was the kind of creative element because what i've done over the last few years has been writing songs and performing my own songs as well which aren't all blues by any means but i just saw other people doing that and i thought i wonder if i can do that as well and I've now got about a dozen songs that I regularly perform. And um, indeed, I'm looking to record them. And so the latest thing I'm doing, again, um, it's taking up a lot of time. I'm learning to use um, kit, online kit, to start to learn to record. So I'm using something called Cakewalk at the moment. And it's proving very challenging to learn. But again, <laughs> I, I know that system's in well done to you. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm still struggling with it. But um, it's very, it's very fascinating, and it, it, so I'm trying to put bass guitar and program drums, and do harmonica as well as my singing guitar playing, and it, it's it's really interesting. So there's that creative element which I find is very satisfying as well. Um, there's a big intake of breath here with everybody because we are coming to the end of this podcast, and I think everybody feels that there's so much more to talk about. Um, we didn't talk about um, fully. There was a there was a mention about how Tim and Noel themselves integrate their professional interests and professional activities with their personal activities, um, and that we haven't unpacked the comment on creativity. There's just so much more to to unpack. I'll just ask you to to tell me where the the day job and the hobby overlap for you, and how you have found out and kind of build on those synergies before we, we draw today's episode to a close. Uh, Tim? I think I, I do see it as I, as I do less academic job, then the music side increases. But um, I find it very interesting to reflect on 
um, what I'm doing and how it how it contributes to my happiness. And um, I actually wrote an article for marketing theory about happiness and co-creation of value. Co-creation of value is a marketing idea, but it struck me that it could be actually um, extended to the idea of happiness co-created with other people because certainly I don't do my my musical stuff in a vacuum it requires other people to do it with or other people's audience and and so that that really set me off thinking of, of, of things that I could actually look at from a marketing point of view and um, I suppose the other aspect of that is, is taking my kind of presentation skills and combining them with my music in this this show that I put together which is a bit different you know it's it's a bit of presentation and a bit of musicianship so I'm trying to trying to combine those skills. It all started in 2003 the year I met Tim when I um, wrote an article for a conference the conference that Tim and I went to uh, jazz and strategic marketing planning it was introducing the jazz metaphor into strategic marketing planning um, and basically my argument was you um, create a good plan but you should treat it like a, a lead sheet a musical score that can be embellished and deviated from as and when necessary and I, I developed a little continuum called the jazzer and the reader the jazzer is an organization that takes a, an improvisatory approach to their implementation of a strategic plan and a reader just sticks rigidly to the score regardless of what's happening in the environment so i've, I've published other articles since that and I have a practical workshop which I deliver with Pete Church where we go into organizations and we explore the mechanics of how a jazz group works how improvisation works uh, and we involve people in the process getting people outside the comfort zones and again it all leads to leadership management um, it's gone beyond marketing now if I'm honest um, so it's uh, it's it's something that it fascinates people which is which is great when I go and do a workshop people go I never thought of that and and I never thought about that and how do I develop as an improviser? And, you know, we tie it into organisational culture, that idea of, of, you know, we were talking about earlier, Kat, weren't we, about that supportive um, community that you have in a jazz group, you know, the rhythm section, piano, bass, drums, guitar. I like a competent management board in an organisation. They play a supportive role with the drummer playing the CEO role. Um, and if you get a really busy drummer that gets in the way, that's, that's akin to micromanagement in an organisational context. So we pull out all of these little parallels um, and it's just great. At the end of the day, I'm stood with that hook, Sam, as we talked about. I'm stood talking about marketing and leadership, but the hook is in my hand, the trumpet. And that hook has been there since I was seven and hopefully it'll be there for a long time to go to. And I must say that um, it certainly en enlivens a marketing conference to have Noel blowing on his trumpet in sessions. I can personally vouch for that, having witnessed said scenario. Uh, I, I think the, yeah, we need, a, we need another podcast, don't we, really? We need another one of these, we need part two. Um, we just don't have enough time. But I, I like, in terms of just closing things uh, down here, just what you've been saying that I love the idea of co-creation of value as a metaphor, you know, kind of musically, but also as a metaphor for happiness and how, you know, particularly in the context of what we've, we've been enduring these last few years, you know, the whole idea of co-creating value, I think has taken on new meaning. Um, but also the idea of improv, you know, a metaphor for a different alternative, an alternative work ethic, maybe 
something like that, you know, and, and I can, I, I see it and hear it. And, and Tim, you've obviously, you know, you've got that kind of part-time kind of mentality in terms of, well, I only have to do work for a certain, and then this is kind of defining my time now. It's this side's growing. No, you're negotiating that. It's something that's always going to be there. But how easy that metaphor crosses over. I, th- I don't think we've had that in a, in a podcast up until, you know, any kind of comments where, you know, very often it's about escaping work or negotiating work or recuperating from work. And I'm sure there's an element of all of that in, in and there is, there has been an element of that, but it's more than that. You know, this is an alternative ethic for me. And I think it's, it's something that perhaps uh, the rest of us could learn from in terms of, you know, the, the, the orientation we have towards work, the orientation we have towards leisure, it's not an either or. It doesn't have to be. It's not, a, you're, not you're not doing this or that. It's actually what can what can you do and what what can the what can one give the other? I think it's a wonderful, wonderful example. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you, Sam. Um, and it's interesting for me because I think at our very first episode two, very first episode two, at our episode two of our season one, I talked about how I was trying to keep my hobby. Um, and my work very separate, you know, and since then I've been on a journey of bringing it together. Um, and it's been an interesting one to observe about the uh, kind of identity morphing uh, and the, the links and then actually drawing parallels more explicitly that you wouldn't have drawn um, otherwise. Fascinating. Tim, would you like to uh, quickly tell us a bit about what you're going to play and then let's hear some. Okay, this is um, uh, old Robert Johnson song that was done by Elmore James with the slide. I've got the slide here on my finger, or bottleneck, as it is called. Um, Dust my broom. Fantastic, Tim. Thank you. Love Robert Johnson. Love Robert Johnson. Uh, so, uh, no, would you like to tell us a little bit about what you're going to play? I imagine you might show some improvisation or play something more specific. Tell us a bit about what we're going to hear just now. So I think I'll just play a little bit of a, a, a standard, There Is No Greater Love, and, and just do a little bit of improvisation for you, um, if that's okay. 
Sounds like perfection. Thank you. brass player Noel I have got top quality admiration for that I love the beautiful soft tone you were talking about that you've been cultivating oh, thank you. just Very absolute, absolute heaven to listen to that thank you if you're ever you. coming down to Bristol to play please let us know you could <laughs> get me Tim. a gig there I'd love to come and do a gig in Bristol <laughs> that would be amazing super okay. great thank you everyone um, this has been a great conversation. We may well come to a part two at some stage. I think it would be good to unpack some, some of this learning further. Thank you to our guests, Noel Dennis and Tim Hughes, and our regular contributors, Kat Branch and Sam Elkington, for a fascinating conversation. Thank you to our wider podcast team, Julia Denman and Helga Ganostodditter. And goodbye, everyone. Until next time, when we continue to talk about leisure, work and well-being and what we can all do to engage with leisure seriously. Goodbye. <laughs>